turn to your seats, if you would, take your Bibles with me and open to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians, this morning our text is chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now, I did mention this on the uh, app this week, but originally the first sermon card I put out, uh, Todd Brady was supposed to be preaching today, and then I would preach next week, and then I realized uh, I'd forgotten my niece's wedding that I had to be part of, and so... uh, so Todd's going to preach next week, and I'm preaching today. Um, so uh, for those of you who came to hear Todd, sorry about that bait and switch, but now you have to come back next week as well. Uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, which is on page 977, if you picked up one of the red Bibles. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we may honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, would you hear the reading of God's word? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, that it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ." And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we do not want to approach this moment in a presumptuous way, so we ask for your grace. Would you help me to preach your word with clarity and power, by the Spirit, and would you help us to hear your Word in those same ways? May it be very clear to us. May it powerfully affect us. May your, may your Spirit take this Word and work in our hearts transformatively so that we are made more like Christ. And specifically this morning, I pray that we would be overwhelmed at your grace to us so that we might be equipped to endure with joy even the suffering we might encounter on your behalf. So we pray this for our good and for the name, and in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. You may be seated. It's very rare that you'll find yourself in conversation with another believer And that believer will be talking about an instance in his or her life that ended poorly, 
and they'll speak of it clearly being the will of God. For example, you're probably not going to have a young man come up to you and say, I prayed about asking this girl out, and then I asked her out on a date. She made very clear to me that she wanted nothing to do with me and would really prefer almost any other man on the planet. And it was in that moment that I knew this was God's will, right? <laughs> it's hard for us, I think, to have a category for walking in God's will and things ending up badly or things leading to our suffering, or maybe even just going in an entirely different direction than we anticipated. But if that's the case, we're not the first believers, perhaps, who were tempted to struggle or be discouraged by those kinds of realities. When Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he wrote it from a Roman prison. You, you heard the account read earlier when David read for us from the book of Acts, how Paul was there in the temple. He was, he was teaching them. The Jews began to charge Paul with teaching against the law, among other things. But I think that specific charge makes sense to us. If you remember back what we said last week when we looked at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, do you remember how Paul said in that text that Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, meaning the law of Moses? He brought the covenant with Moses to an end. So that now no longer, as he's instituted a new covenant, no longer are the people of God defined by those who are circumcised or only eat certain foods or only wear certain garments or who celebrate festivals and the like. No, 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 no. His new covenant is characterized by individuals who have had circumcision of heart, who have been given new hearts, new life, who have been born again. So you can imagine Paul explaining that in the temple and how they very clearly would have understood that as Paul speaking against the law. And so they took him, they, they, they bound him. Eventually, uh, even the Roman authorities had to basically drag Paul out of there, but Paul was sent to prison. In fact, he made an appeal to the Roman emperor Nero and was, was taken to Rome, where eventually he was in prison and, and wrote this letter to Ephesians. We actually know ultimately that led to his execution. But nonetheless, he writes this letter, obviously before he's executed, but while he's still in prison. And as he begins chapter 3, it seems that as Paul starts out writing that third chapter, it seems like he's about to dive into a prayer that he prays for the Ephesians. Now, the reason I say that I think he's about to dive into a prayer it's because the words with which he starts Ephesians chapter 3, he never finishes in the text we're looking at today. Here's what he says, for this reason I, Paul, and he never concludes that thought in our text. He never finishes, for this reason I, Paul, do what, Paul? He never says it. He picks it up, though, later in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So it seems that he was about to write out, for this reason I bow my knees for the Father and I pray this for you. When, when, but in that moment that he went to write that, it's as if his thoughts were interrupted. Why? What, what caught his attention in that moment that made him think, I need to address something else to these Ephesians? I think it's the fact that he was in prison. Because here's what he writes in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. 
As Paul starts that and writes to them that I am a prisoner, I'm writing this from prison, and I'm in prison because of my obedience to Jesus Christ, and I'm in prison on your behalf. That is, I'm in prison because I've sought to minister to you. And it seems that when Paul writes those words, a thought leaps up into his heart, and the thought is this, I do not want these Ephesians to be discouraged by the fact that I'm in prison. I I don't want them to lose heart over it. I I don't want them to think that somehow this means that that something has gone terribly wrong for me, that somehow I'm outside of the will of God, or or maybe that the message I preached isn't, isn't really as powerful as it is that can change people's lives because, well, look at me, I'm in prison. The reason I think that's Paul's fear, that they might be discouraged and and kind of lose heart in light of the fact that he's writing to them from prison, is because that's exactly what he says. Go all the way down to the last verse of our text, verse 13. Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul begins... I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And he ends, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for your sake. It's for your glory. And in the middle, verse 2 through verse 12, Paul gives us the reasons why the Ephesian believers should not lose heart, why they shouldn't be discouraged, why they shouldn't be shaken, even though Paul's obedience has meant that he's in prison. And really, he gives them two reasons, and these are going to be the two points of my sermon, which should suggest it's a bit shorter, although not always. Two reasons Paul gives. Let me give you both the reasons in long form, and then I'll give you them in short form for the sermon points. The first reason that Paul gives them for why uh, they shouldn't be discouraged is he's going to tell them, God has given me, he's been the most gracious he could be in that he's given me insight into something that, that no one saw as clearly as I have until this moment. Me and a few others, he's shown this revelation. That's the first reason. The second reason he's going to give is God's grace also not only gave me that insight, but has given me a mission that is glorious and through which that mission God does amazing things. So that's going to be the two reasons why we shouldn't be discouraged. So, so by the time we get to the end, I hope that it's going to make sense why Paul would write to the Ephesians, you shouldn't be discouraged by the fact that I'm in prison because look at what God has done for me. Okay, so heading number one, the gracious revelation Paul was given. The gracious revelation Paul was given. This begins in verse 2. Look at what he writes in verse 2. Well, again, we'll start in verse 1 because you have to pick it up kind of midstream there. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So Paul says, I want you to know that that God gave revelation to me. He gave me knowledge And this knowledge was he gave me insight into a mystery. He mentions a mystery that was made known to me by Revelation, one that I've written about briefly. Now, when the Bible says mystery, it doesn't mean the same thing that that, that we probably have come to our minds. I mean, later, 
Paul's going to use the term again. He actually uses it three times in our text. He's going to use it again later when he refers to marriage. He's going to refer to marriage as a mystery. And we might hear that as if he's saying marriage is mysterious. Like he's saying, like, like men are going, yeah, I, I, I don't understand these ladies. And the ladies are going, I don't understand these men. But that's not what Paul's saying, as true as that might be. Paul's not using mystery to mean mysterious or confusing. He's using the term mystery in a very technical way to refer to something that was always true, something that was true from the beginning, but it was hidden. There were hints at it, but it was largely hidden until Jesus Christ came on the scene. And then when Jesus came and He lived and died and was raised and ascended back to the Father's right hand, all of a sudden He revealed it in a way that was clear, so that although the, this, this truth was always present, was always there, was always being hinted at, it is now clearly revealed in Christ. Paul says, this mystery has been revealed to me. He continues on in verse 4 and 5, talking about those specifically to whom this mystery was made known. He says in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul says, I want to make clear, this was not revealed in prior generations. Nobody understood it the way that we have now been shown this truth. And he showed this truth specifically, he says, to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, who are those individuals, apostles and prophets? And the reason I ask the question is because this isn't the first time that we've encountered that group. You may have seen this in the text last week and thought to yourself, why didn't Lee address who these people were? Because in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, just in the text we saw last week, that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Okay, so who are the apostles and prophets? Well, let's start with the first group, the apostles, because this is pretty easy. The apostles refer to a group of individuals who were made authoritative mouthpieces for Jesus Christ. So, the apostles included those 12 individuals that Jesus called to follow Him. Remember, as he, John, Peter, James, Matthew, the like. Uh, now, it doesn't include Judas. Judas ended up betraying the Lord and ended up taking his own life. And so, you remember in the early chapters of Acts, the other 11 apostles voted to replace Judas with another individual. They were voted to replace him with Matthias. So, you got the 12, these 12 individuals, these 12 individuals who had walked with the Lord who were eyewitnesses to His resurrection, when they spoke about the resurrection of Christ, it's because they saw the resurrected Christ. And Paul. Now, now you might say, well, how does Paul get included with the apostles? Because did he really see the resurrected Christ? And the answer is yes. Not in the same time that all the others saw the resurrected Christ. He wasn't in the room with the twelve when Jesus showed up, or with the 11, you know, Jesus showed up, and then later Thomas, he was missed on that occasion. Talk about a bummer being gone. You know, I wish, he probably thought, I wish I'd planned my day a little better than that. But uh, later, Thomas is with the 12, all of them together. Jesus appears in the room with them as the resurrected Christ. Thomas says, let me touch your hands, touch your side, right? I mean, th th this is, the resurrected Christ appears to them. Paul's not in either of those places, 
But sometime later, Paul was on his way to Damascus actually to kill Christians, to have them imprisoned uh, and perhaps ultimately executed. And on his way to Damascus, the risen Jesus Christ shows up in the sky and blinds him and knocks him off his horse. So his encounter with the risen Christ wasn't an easy, peaceful time. It was when the risen Christ appeared to him in the sky. So these individuals, these apostles... Jesus told them in John 14 and in John 16, the Spirit's going to do two amazing things for them. One, the Spirit is going to remind them of everything that Christ had taught them, which is amazing. I mean, have you ever wondered, how in the world did Matthew sit down and write his gospel, including the Sermon on the Mount? And then Jesus said this, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this. I mean, even if I told you right now as a group Hey, everybody, listen to my sermon, because at the end, I want you to have listened carefully enough that you can all get together and reproduce it word for word. You'd be like, that's not possible. So how did Matthew do it? How did John do it in his gospel? Well, he did it because the Spirit came and reminded them of everything Jesus had said to them. Not only that, but Jesus also says, when the Spirit comes, He will not only remind you of all that I've taught you, but He will lead you into all truth. That is, He's going to bring to your minds truths that I never even spoke about when I was around. This is why, for example, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, remember, sometimes he'll say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he'll say, uh, the Lord says, not I. And that's his way, he's saying to the Corinthians, I'm giving you his instructions, and I'll tell you what, the very instructions I'm giving you these were instructions Jesus actually said when he was walking around. And then later, Paul will say, he's going to give them more instructions, and he says, I, not the Lord, say. Well, that's not Paul's way of saying what I'm speaking doesn't come with the Lord's authority or aren't his words. What Paul is saying is, Jesus never said this when he walked the earth, but I have the Spirit. And when the Spirit came to Paul, it led him into all truth. So the apostles were able to take and write down Scripture so that the words that they wrote are the very words of God. So when Paul begins this letter, as you see in Ephesians 1, verse 1, and he says in that verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, what he's saying is, I'm not writing this letter just as some kind of, you know, hey, how are you doing kind of letter. No, I'm writing it as an authoritative mouthpiece for Jesus Christ. And when you read my words, you can say, thus says the Lord. That's who the apostles were. Okay, that's easy enough who are the prophets? Right? Because he says in Ephesians 2.20, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And in our text, Paul says this, this mystery revelation was given to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Who are they? Some have suggested that by prophets, Paul means the Old Testament prophets. But there are a couple reasons that doesn't work. Actually, John Calvin, in his commentary, he argues that. There are a couple reasons Calvin's wrong on this point. One of them, funny enough, is because every time Calvin refers to this group, he reverses the order in his commentary. He says, the prophets and the apostles. Now, the reason he does that is because he knows the prophets came first, then the apostles. The problem is, Paul doesn't reverse that order. He says, the apostles and the prophets. So one reason I don't think it works is just the order. But the other reason it doesn't work it's because right here in this text, I mean, look at verse 5. 
He says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul says, these groups of prophets I'm talking about, there are people who are with me right now. They've been shown this revelation. So I don't think it's the Old Testament prophets. It could refer to somebody like Agabus. Remember Agabus in the book of Acts? He's saying things like, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound, or he's, he's prophesying a famine's coming. It could be Agabus, but, but here's the problem with that. Agabus never seems to fulfill this role. Agabus never seems to step up and say, let me tell you what God has revealed about what His Scripture teaches, and write this down. I mean, Agabus is not writing any Scripture. He's not speaking in authoritative ways, so it doesn't seem to fit him as much. Maybe you could say it's, well, it's anybody that prophesies. I mean, the church at Corinth, they prophesied. In fact, Paul says, I, I want you all to prophesy. But I have trouble believing that it's people like the Corinthians. For one, that church was so messed up, none of you would have wanted to have joined it. But, but the Corinthians, Paul will say to them, hey, when one of you is prophesying, like, speak for a little bit and then stop, and then let somebody else speak, and then him stop. And then, it's hard for me to think Paul would say that if they were speaking the authoritative words of God that could be written down as Scripture. But there is. There's another group who are not apostles. They're not the twelve. And they did write with the authority of God Himself. Words that we must obey as if they're spoken by Jesus Christ to us. Those individuals are individuals like James and Judas, Jude, the Lord's half-brothers. Mark and Luke, right? Individuals who wrote biblical books and weren't part of the twelve. It seems to me it may be the case that Paul is referring to the apostles whom God by His Spirit led into all truth and other individuals, a group of individuals who are not apostles but fit another group, but he's saying that group as well. They spoke with the authority of Christ. They wrote with the authority of Christ. And those individuals as well were given insight into this. I mean, Paul's going to say eventually that the Gentiles and the Jews are on equal footing before God. Who was shown that more clearly than Luke? And when you read the book of Acts, it is laid out clearly. So it may well be that Paul's just calling this other group prophets, individuals like John Mark and Luke who wrote the Gospels, individuals like whoever wrote the letter of Hebrews, maybe Apollos or somebody. But either way, Paul's saying, okay, I was given insight by the grace of God. I was given revelation, revelation that had not been known in prior generations that has now been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, at this point, we're like, I get it, Paul. What's the mystery? Here's what he says in verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you were here last week, that may feel a bit anticlimactic to you. You may say, Paul had this big buildup about this mystery being revealed to him, and the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs with believing Jews, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Didn't he already say that in the text we saw last week? I think Paul would say, yes, that's why I said in verse 3 I wrote to you about it briefly. 
I wrote to you about it then, I'm just bringing it up again now. Here's what he says, the mystery is this, that if you're a Jew and you believe the gospel, you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord who's been raised from the dead, or you're a Gentile who believes that same thing, either way, Jews and Gentiles both are heirs of all the promises God has made. So when you read the Old Covenant, when you read the Old Testament, and you read the promises that God says, I will give this to my people, and you're a believing Gentile, that comes to you. In fact, Paul's going to say in Romans 4.13 that all those who are Abraham's offspring, which is everybody who believes, Jew and Gentile, we are heirs of the world. We're going to reign with Christ one day. We're members of the same body with those Jews who believe. I mean, Jew who believes and a Gentile believes, we're just both part of the same church standing on equal footing. We're both recipients of the promises. Promises like Jeremiah 31 saying, I'm going to give you a new heart, I'm going to put my spirit in you. The Spirit came to a believing Jew, the Spirit comes to a believing Gentile. That's the mystery, Paul says, that he has been shown. Now, this does raise a question. It raised a question in my mind when I was studying the text. And that question goes something like this. Are you sure, Paul, that this wasn't made known in prior generations? Because when I read the Old Testament, it looks like it's there. I mean, think about Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. When God called Abraham to himself, you know what he said? He said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the families on the face of the earth. That sounds like Gentiles, right? Or think about uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. I mean, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And my new covenant people are going to have new hearts and have the Spirit in them. Isaiah envisioned a day when Assyrians and Egyptians would all come streaming to Jerusalem to be the people of God. So, so what's new? What, was it, what is it that Paul was shown that is not really clear in the Old Testament? I think probably three things. One, my guess is the key piece that was revealed to Paul is that all of this work of making believing Gentiles and believing Jews all on the same footing, all members of the same body, is carried out through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It may be that every Old Testament believer who even understood one day God will save Gentiles did not see clearly that would happen through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, it may also be the case that though an Old Testament believer could have understood God's going to make a new covenant, he might not have understood that by bringing about a new covenant, he was going to make the old covenant come to an end. In other words, they may well have thought, God's going to make a new covenant where He's going to circumcise people's hearts and make them new, but of course we'll always be required to be circumcised and abstain from pork and right? Don't sow two seeds together in the ground. They, they may have missed that the new covenant coming along was going to mean that the old one came to an end. Or the final thing that they may have missed is that there really was going to be absolutely no difference between Jew and Gentile who was in Christ. I mean, they may have thought, yes, this is a glorious day to come, that, that Gentiles are going to be brought in and become the people of God, and they'll get to live among us Jews, and, and they'll be second-class citizens, but they'll be with us. But that's not the case. 
There are no second-class citizens, Paul says. Paul says, this mystery has been revealed to me that Jews, that the believing Gentiles along with believing Jews are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise. So he says, the first reason why you should not be discouraged about the fact that I'm in prison for obeying Jesus Christ is you need to understand, I have been the object of so much grace from the Lord. And the first way I want to point this out is God made known to me a revelation by His grace of a glorious truth that Gentiles are fellow heirs, partakers of the same promise, members of the same body with believing Jews. The second note of grace, number two in our sermon points, the gracious mission Paul was given. You see, God's grace did not stop with making that truth known to Paul. God also, by His grace, gave him a mission. And I say, but gave him a mission. I mean, I say in each case, uh, he was gracious because if you go back to verse 2, notice this is how Paul shapes this. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And then notice in verse 7, of this gospel, he said, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. Paul says, Not only did God show this to me, but then He graciously gave me a mission to make this known to others. Paul's overwhelmed at how gracious God has given to me, been to him. As evidence of how gracious, how overwhelmed he is by God's grace, look at verse 8. He says, he stresses, God gave this gift to me. He says, verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why does Paul say he was the least of the saints? Because here's how he was converted. He had actually been given a document and a piece of authority to say that he could go and imprison Christians. Everybody that believed and testified and followed Jesus as the Christ, Paul was persecuting them. He wanted to see them die. That's why he stood when Stephen was being stoned to death and he held the garments, Luke says, of everybody who was stoning Stephen. It's why he got that writ of certificate and he was taking it to have Christians thrown into prison. He hated the Lord Jesus Christ and was persecuting everybody who was following him. And then, on his way to Damascus, as he was persecuting Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in the sky. Now, if you and I didn't know how this story ended, and we were going to guess, could you imagine how this story ends? I mean, in fact, Jesus is going to say to Paul, his name was Saul then, he's going to say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? When you think an individual is not the Lord, and you think he did not rise from the dead, and all of a sudden he appears to you, risen from the dead, as the Lord, you probably think, I've had a good run. Right? This is going to end badly for me. If ever there's a moment to realize, "Uh uh-oh, I was wrong, that's it, right? And instead, when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in the sky, instead of saying, Saul, Saul, you've persecuted me, and now you're going to face my wrath with merciless fury. Instead, he says, I've chosen you to be an instrument for me. I'm going to show you by my grace 
a mystery that no one has seen as clearly as I'm about to show you. That Gentiles can be part of the people of God. And it doesn't stop there. I'm going to give you a mission to go to those Gentiles and preach this good news to them. That's why Paul says, I'm the least of the saints. He says, listen, you may be unsaved out of whatever circumstance. I was persecuting Jesus Christ and his followers. And when he should have wiped me out in his wrath, he saved me. So Paul says, the mission I was given was to proclaim this good news to Gentiles. But then he says something crazy about the aim of this mission. Notice what he says. We'll start in verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. He says, I'm going to make proclaim the riches of Christ to the Gentiles. I'm going to make known this mystery that I've just been telling you about, that Gentiles can be on equal footing through faith in Christ. Why? Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, the reason I want to preach this, because I want to see Gentiles come to faith, and I want to see Jews come to faith, I want them both to come to faith, become part of the church, so that in the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And at that point, my guess is we're all saying, what? What's that mean? I don't know anybody who says, I'm going to go preach the gospel to my neighbor today. And we say, great, why? And they go, because I want the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places to take note. What's Paul talking about? Well, it seems, by rulers and authorities in heavenly places, he's referring to the spiritual realm. So some commentators have said he could be talking about angels. In other words, Paul could be saying, I'm going to preach the gospel so Gentiles come to faith, become part of the people of God, and angels, one of the reasons they may want to take note of this and just be in awe of the manifold wisdom of God is because angels don't actually experience redemption. When angels rebelled against the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be cast into the lake of fire that is hell forever. There's no redeeming plan for angels. And so Peter, when Peter writes his epistle, Peter says actually in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, when he writes about redemption, he says, these are the things I'm writing to you about, that we've been redeemed. There are things that angels long to look into. Why? Because they don't get to experience. I mean, they are just in awe. When one of us repents and believes, and, and we are forgiven of our sins, and become a child of God, an angel is going, did you see that? We don't experience that. That is awesome. They, they're in awe of the wisdom of God in this church. So it may very well be angels. I think, though, it's most likely demons. Could be both. But let me give you an argument for why I think it could be demons. Because note in verse 10 the language he uses, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now flip over in your Bible just one page, most likely, to chapter 6. In chapter 6, Paul is going to talk about the fact that we are at war. And he's going to say we're not at war against flesh and blood, we're at war against demonic forces. But notice how he describes these demonic forces in chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities. And he's going to go on, but now how this ends. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you take the beginning of verse 12 and the end of verse 12, he says, we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, and the end of verse 12, in the heavenly places. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, I'm doing all this, I'm proclaiming this good news to the Gentiles, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it seems to me that Paul's talking about demons. But how does this work? Here's how I think it works. As Paul preaches the gospel, and Jews believe, and they become part of the church, and he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, and they believe, and they become part of the church, demons can do nothing about it. I think that's why Paul mentions in verse 9, it's an odd phrase. In verse 9, he says, to bring the light to everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God? That's not weird, because Paul's been talking about the mystery hidden for all ages. Nothing's weird about that. What's weird is that he says, in God, who created all things? You're like, we know. Right? That's like saying Lee, the tall, thin guy sitting in front of you. Right? You know that. I think the reason he mentions God created all things is because he's making clear these demons, they're part of the created order. They can do nothing about it. In fact, notice what he says in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So in other words, God set an eternal purpose and plan in motion from eternity past. He would have a people from Jews and Gentiles who would believe, and they would be part of one body, both able to access him in prayer and call him father because they would be his children. And as Paul goes about and he preaches the gospel, Jews believe, Gentiles believe, and they're brought into the church, demons are forced in some sense to sit on the sidelines saying, we can't stop this. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gospel goes forth and they're coming. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they're blinded by Satan now. I know they're in the grasp of the prince of the power of the air now. I know they're following the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience now. But when through the gospel God saves them, he takes that strong man and he binds him up and he says, and now I'm plundering your goods. I'm taking that one, he's mine. I'm taking that one, he's mine. Taking some of those Jews, mine. Some of those Gentiles, mine. And when he brings them together from every background and race and class and education level, and he brings them together as brothers and sisters in Christ into one church, and they love God, and they love one another, the demons go, I know we hate him, but that's pretty awesome. They have to marvel at the manifold wisdom of God through the church. 
Paul says, that's why I preach the gospel. Because God is showing off before those who are under his judgment. And you and I, that's why we can speak to ourselves as just connect it all. If you've been here the past few weeks, that's why you and I are trophies of his grace. As if God, before the demonic world, is going, here's another trophy. Take it in. Nothing you can do about it. Take it in. Here's another one. Take it in. And the church, it's a glorious, glorious picture. So that's what Paul says he's doing. So to get back then to the larger point, Paul says, I know I'm writing to you from prison. And, and, and I know, I, I know that you could be discouraged by that. Oh, Paul, he's in prison. I hate this. I feel so bad for him. Let's, don't pity me. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Instead, recognize no one has been the object of more grace than me. I should have borne the wrath of God on that road to Damascus, and instead, God gave me insight into this mystery that Gentiles could become the people of God through faith or right alongside believing Jews. And He gave me a mission that I get to preach this message and watch you come into the kingdom. And demons have to sit there and be impressed with the manifold wisdom of God. Oh, don't pity me because I'm sitting in a Roman prison cell. You say, thank God for the grace He's shown this brother. Now here's my question. You and I aren't Paul. So what's this text have to do with us? Paul didn't write to you and me specifically from a prison cell, and nor did you, nor were any of us on our way to Damascus to pursue Christians when the risen Christ appeared to us. So, so what's this text say to us? I think one thing that we can recognize from this text is although we want to say we are not Paul, we are amazingly in a very similar position. It may not be as clear to us that we deserved the wrath of God as it was to Paul that day when the risen Christ appeared to him on the way to Damascus. But brothers and sisters, remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You and I were born into this world by nature, children of wrath. By nature, we deserve God's wrath. We deserved His furious, merciless wrath. And instead, think of what He's done for you. He has said to you, I'm going to open your eyes to see the glory of the gospel in the face of my glorious Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you how beautiful and amazing the Lord Jesus Christ is so that He will arrest your soul and you will never turn away from Him. And not only that, I'm not only going to save you, but I'm going to make you all ambassadors for Christ. I'm going to make you all representatives for the King of kings and Lord of lords. You get to go into this world and say, the King who reigns has good news for you. You can be reconciled to Him if you will repent of your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived, who died, who was raised, and who's coming again. Brothers and sisters, that is a privilege. And it looks to me like, I said this a few weeks ago, I think it's true. It looks to me like in the day and time in which we live, the persecution that believers face in the United States of America, I think is going to be ever increasing. I think it's going to cost us more to follow Jesus Christ and obey His commands now and in the years to come than it has perhaps in the last 250 years living here. 
And so when this comes, and you get fired from your job because you won't confuse gender or the like, you lose paychecks, you're maybe even imprisoned for following and obeying Jesus Christ. In that moment, it could be self-pity takes hold of us. And we all say, woe is me. But here's my prayer. In that moment, I pray that you will not lose heart. But you'll be strengthened to remember that you are the objects of God's grace, making known to you a mystery and a privilege to proclaim to that judge or any official or any fellow inmate. I've got good news for you. You can repent and believe and be part of the people of God. Heirs of the promises, partakers of the promises, members of the same body with any Jew who believes. And so may we be faithful to proclaim this good news no matter what it costs us and not lose heart, but be overwhelmed by the grace of God going forward. May this text equip us to obey even if suffering comes. And so what we're going to do is what we do every week. We're going to proclaim one more time in a visible way we've heard the call of Christ in His Word, and our answer is yes and amen, Lord, by Your grace, we will obey You. And we're going to show that. We're going to visibly proclaim that by coming to the table where we eat bread, we drink from the cup, and we proclaim the one who gave His body and shed His blood is our Lord. So if you're a believer, you profess your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to come. You're a member with the Gospel Preaching Church. We're going to invite you to come. We'll just dismiss row by row. Come forward. There'll be a stack of two cups in the tray. You'll take that one stack of two cups. The bottom one has bread. top one has juice. You return to your seat, second, third, fourth row, follow. And then once we get to our seats and we've all, partake, we've all taken the cups, we'll eat together and we'll drink together, proclaiming our unity as those who have been redeemed and brought together. And as we do so, this is key. I know this is the part where it's so easy to tune out because he's just saying the things he says every week. But as we do so, and as you walk forward as a trophy of the Lord's grace, and you grab those cups, and you return to your seats proclaiming, my faith is in the one who gave his body and shed his blood, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, they're going to be taking note of the manifold wisdom of God in His church. And if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to talk to me or one of your neighbors, we'd love to talk to you more, but I would love to see you come to faith in Christ, to become part of the people of God, and to make the demons take note that there's nothing they can do to stop Jesus Christ from growing His church. So I plead with you to come to faith in Christ. Let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to